Let's get started here. This morning there's some notes on the back if you don't have those. Got a lot of fill-ins this morning. Gonna give you lots to write. Always good to be back. We've only got this week and then two more weeks. So sad. So sad. If I had it my way, I'd go into all kinds of other things, but that's okay. Sometimes I feel like after like eight or eight, I feel like eight to ten weeks is good. I feel like once you get ten weeks, people are like, all right, let's talk about something else now. Let's move on. But that's not, that's not me. I think when we do Pilgrim's Progress, that'll be at least like 12 weeks. So that'll be kind of a long haul, a long haul class. But I think it'll be good. I'll try to keep it interesting. So, yes. I do, yes. There is, um, I can probably send you a, a link. There is a guy, um, a pastor. He may have passed away. I actually don't know. I was trying to find him because his name is Barry Horner. He actually used to do, he's an Australian guy. He lives in the U.S. He's a Bunyan nerd, and he's written books on Pilgrim's Progress. He did his doctoral work on Pilgrim's Progress, and he would do like uh, seminars, like he'd travel to churches and like talk about Pilgrim's Progress for a couple hours. I was like, oh man, that'd be so cool. Um, and he, ha- he has like a 700-page commentary on Pilgrim's Progress. And so I'm using all of his stuff. And uh, I downloaded all that like maybe six months ago. And his, his website doesn't exist anymore. Um, so I don't know if he passed away or something like that. He was in his 70s or 80s. But he has a version. It's probably easier if I just send you the link. You can find it on Amazon. The problem is if you go on Amazon, type in Pilgrim's Progress, there's literally like a thousand different versions. Um, so you have to find this one. It's funny because it has a terrible title. It's like, I, I should, it's just, it's super sketchy. It's like Pilgrim's Progress, the authorized revised edition. Which anytime it's like that, it's like, hmm, authorized revised, like, hmm. It just, my, my alarm bells ring off. But it, he does a really good job because he, he uh, I haven't read all through it, but he kind of smooths out the old English. I like the old English, so, but I don't expect everyone to. So. Barry Horner, B-A-R-R-Y, and then Horner, H-O-R-N-E-R. Yeah, Horner. Um, I can probably just send you a link. Um, that would be the one I would, I would recommend. The Banner of Truth edition is really good, but it has some old English. What's nice is that it has parts one and two, um, whereas this one is just part one. But he, his is, the English is really good. He smooths it out. He has some really good helpful notes and stuff like that. Um, so that's the one. That's, that's the one I would recommend. So, but I kind of, before the class, I actually want to read through the main banner one, that one, and then also, Na- I got Natalie an edition that's like in, yeah, it's like mo- like super modern English, which I'm like, okay. I want, pe- I want people to read Pilgrim's Progress at the very least, so I'm not up in arms about it. But some of the old metaphors and stuff like that, I don't want to change. So anyways, we'll get into that later. So. As always, some review. We're on that second point there. What are they contributing to our everyday walk with the Lord? Uh, mainly looking at John Owen these last couple weeks. His main works that he's known for, communion with God, the mortification of sin, probably those main two. Um, looked at temptation last week. Temptation based on that one verse there, Matthew twenty six forty one. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He kind of observes in that whole book three things that he unpacks. Um, Those three notions there. The evil that's cautioned against in the verse. That's temptation. 
the means of its prevalency are entering into it. Good morning. Hello. Come on in. Uh, and then number three there, the way of preventing it, watch and pray. He kind of has this long definition on temptation, but I found it pretty helpful. Um, maybe something to, I can always send quotes to you if you guys want them. Temptation then in general is anything, state, way, or condition that upon any account, whatever, has a force or efficacy to seduce, to draw the mind and heart of a man from its obedience, which God requires of him into any sin, in any degree, whatever. So it's pretty broad. Um, and he launches into that, what does it mean to really be tempted? And then uh, we looked at indwelling sin. That's his main work on Romans seven twenty-one. So I find it to be a law or a principle, you might say. Uh, this is something that is true. I find it to be a principle or a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. So even for the believer, indwelling sin is something that we have to deal with. And then again... Four things that he unpacks. There are four truths we can pull from that verse. The power and efficacy of indwelling sin. He calls it a law or a principle, something that just exists within him, his old sin nature. The way of discovering this law, Paul found it. Right? It's one thing to be told indwelling sin exists. It's another thing. We know it to be true in our experience, right? And that's where he hones in on it. It's, sure, we, we, we know from the word of God that we have indwelling sin, but experientially we can see it as well. Uh, very evident. The frame of his soul. He wants to do right. This is a believer. He's trying to honor the Lord. He's trying to walk in the straight and narrow path and to continue on that way. Uh, but when he does that, the state and activity of indwelling sin, evil lies close at hand. And so really good, helpful treatise there on unpacking indwelling sin. Much more that we could say. We barely scratched the surface of those two books. I just realized I left my book giveaway in the office. Oh. No, 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 it's okay. We'll still give it away. You just have to see me afterwards. Um, but gave away those two books. Uh, I wanted to end last week, which we didn't have time. That's okay, because we're looking at the other two wings. Uh, just kind of briefly looking at the relationship between justification and sanctification. Um, and it's good, because we actually have, we can do that the whole week. Um, and I actually think, or this whole morning, I think that's really actually profitable. Um, this isn't really going to be an examination, therefore, of you know, one Puritan work on justification or on sanctification. It's actually kind of going to be a summary um, we actually did this in a class I had back at Southern, talking about the Puritans, all this stuff. And we just kind of stepped back and just looked, okay, here's what they taught about justification. Here's what they taught about sanctification. And so I think it's helpful, especially the last two weeks, talking a lot about sin, indwelling sin, killing it, temptation. You, know, you can get left with this impression of just like, ugh, ugh, this is rough, okay? Um, so trying to give some hope um, in that. So that's what I want to do. I'm calling it... Um, the Reformed Christian, or the Reformed model of sanctification, the Pilgrim Christian, rather. This is a title, the title page um, from the early editions of Pilgrim's Progress there. You can see Bunyan sleeping. There he is, taking a nap. Um, and uh, you can see there, you know, a picture of what the book is all about, right? Here's Christian, the Pilgrim, leaving, you probably can't read it, but City of Destruction, and then on his way to uh, the heavenly city there. And I think it's actually a really helpful analogy, uh, allegory to think through the Christian life. Um, this is something I, I realized in studying a little more. Uh, I think I always thought of Pilgrim's Progress as kind of like an evangelistic tract. You know, you give this to your you know, unbelieving uh, friend or something like that. And I'm not saying the Lord hasn't used it to save 
you know, countless people. But it's not actually mainly an evangelistic track. Uh, over 90% of Pilgrim's Progress takes place after Christian is converted. So on the spectrum of, you know, is it mainly focusing on justification or sanctification, which is it focusing on? Sanctification, right? The Pilgrim's Progress, right? It's not the, the, the Pilgrim's, you know, salvation. Um, he's talking about the Pilgrim Christian's journey uh, on the straight and narrow path in the Christian life. Um, it's mainly focused on sanctification. I'd also just add this. It's not really a book for kids, okay? So, I mean, Pilgrim's Progress, I like, you know, we've got a couple kid versions, and they're cute, and they're good, and they teach good, helpful things. Um, and I'm all for getting people, you know, kids to read the Bible and, you know, delight in good storytelling and all that stuff. But I, I would just say it, it's not meant for kids. So sometimes it's like, oh, Pilgrim's Progress, I don't really want to read that because it's kind of like a kid's book. It's actually not. Um, I mean, just think about some of the things that happens in it. Faithful, one of the characters in it, he's tempted to sin with an adulteress, to commit sexual immorality. Typically speaking, like a nine-year-old isn't really struggling with that. Uh, <laughs> Right? Like, we're just tracking them here. Like, that's an adult thing, right? Um, I mean, that's just one thing. Christian contemplates committing suicide. Okay? Like, those are heavy adult themes, right? Um, another one here, Hopeful. He's another character. He has a diminishing, uh, you know, love for the things of the world, and he struggles with the love of money and all these things. I'm sure maybe a four-year-old is struggling with the love of money. Uh, but generally speaking, like, that's an adult thing, right? Like, we're the ones struggling with, you know, temptation. We're the ones struggling with doubt and despair. You know, I, like, I just don't picture like a five-year-old locked up in, you know, uh, doubting castle, you know, just, you see what I'm saying? It's like, generally speaking, a five-year-old is chilling, okay? They're fine. They're, they're the ones not dealing with these things. Um, so Pilgrim's Progress is meant for adults, and it's meant for, uh, you know, how we understand justification, sure, but mainly how justification impacts our sanctification, our walk with the Lord. Does that make sense? Um, and so I'm excited to get into that next spring. Um, but I just wanted to go over justification, sanctification, Pilgrim's Progress focuses on that salvation and that progressive progress um, in the, the Christian walk. And why talk about this? Well, one, I already mentioned, you know, we've been talking about sin, temptation a lot. Uh, how do we understand these things as believers? The second thing, and this is just kind of providentially, um, how things worked out, but um, kind of with the whole influencers, you know, controversy that's been going on, the Bakersfield statement. Did anyone go to the conference the other day? Jeff, I know you did. Timmy went. Okay. Was it good? Profitable? Good stuff. Um, I, I don't know how much they, they talked about this, but really the influencers movement, when you look back, especially at their materials, is really based in what I would just call mysticism, you know, a lot of, you know, God speaking to you apart from his word, you know, in dreams or, or just odd things like that. Um, so there's a lot of mysticism there. It goes back to also some base in uh, higher life, what we would call Keswick theology. I don't know if you guys have heard of that, but, um, you know, essentially you can reach another level in your stage of, of sanctification, like another I would say, like, plateau of existence, okay? Like, you have normal Christians down here, and he actually makes this real clear in the main uh, book they use, Journey to the Inner Chamber. You know, you've got normal Christians down here, and it's just kind of boring life. You're not doing well. But then there's next-level Christianity that you can attain to. Um, and I would just argue, what we've been looking at, um, you know, especially Pilgrim's Progress, that's just not biblical, okay? 
Um, we have everything we need for life and godliness now in Christ Jesus. There's not a next level Christianity. We're all in progress uh, growing in Christ's likeness. Actually, there is a next level Christianity. That's when you're glorified, okay? That's after you die, so I hate to break it to you. Um, it's not going to happen now. Uh, it's, it's going to come in the future. And so I wanted to, to talk about that um, and focusing here on justification, sanctification, how they relate to one another. So, <coughs> excuse me, kind of that first point you have there, got to start here with uh, justification, the believers standing in Christ. The believers standing in Christ. And again, not looking at, we'll look at some quotes from George Swinnick. He says some really helpful things on this later on. But this is really just a broad summary of Puritan Reformed theology, okay? So bringing those points together. Well, first one here, believers standing in Christ, united with Christ, union with him, um, however you want to word it. Romans 6 is probably one of the most helpful places to look there. This is who you are as a believer. You are united to Christ. That cannot be severed. That cannot be changed. Um, you know, we have union and communion with him. Our union is inseparable. That cannot change. Our communion with him can, right? Our communion with him is oftentimes dependent, um, you know, on our obedience to him, our walking, keeping in step with the spirit. But we have to start here. Believers are united to Christ. Number two, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. A temple of the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians talks about how personally, we are individually, uh, um, the, the Holy Spirit indwells believers individually, right? We are individually temples of the Holy Spirit. And also corporately, those individuals joined together are united in a local church, and they are together also a temple of the Holy Spirit. This is true. That cannot change. These are unchangeable realities. This is, if you're in Christ, if you've been justified, these are all true. Number three, you're people of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31 prophesies it. Uh, in Luke, I think chapter 22, Jesus at the Lord's, uh, the Last Supper there, he says this blood is the new covenant, right? He inaugurates and brings in the new covenant. Jeremiah talks about how the work of the Holy Spirit is going to come. He's going to change our hearts. Uh, he's going to give us a new nature such that we want to do what's right. No longer live in carrying out the desires of the flesh. But we have a new implanted nature. Uh, and that kind of relates to this last one here. We are a new creation. A new creation. Notice not a perfected creation, right? That's not yet. That comes later. That is at glorification. Second Corinthians 5.17, Behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So these are truths. This is where you have to start. Justification. This is true of you, okay? Before even getting into indwelling sin, temptation, the mortification of sin, maybe you're counseling yourself. Maybe you're counseling other people. We, we really got to start here, right? Because oftentimes, and this is kind of another reason why I want to talk about it, is, you know, you're helping someone. They're dealing with, you know, they're, they're sorrowful over sin. They're struggling with all these things. Rather than, you know, telling them like, hey, you need to put sin to death. You do need to get there, okay? But you need to start here, actually. Because it could be they're not understanding, look, I've been buried with Christ. I died with him. I was crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, okay? Well, because that's true, then therefore I need to put to death the deeds of the flesh, right? You're not to put to death the deeds of your flesh in and of your own selves. You cannot do that. 
We can do that because we've been united with Christ. We have the same, you know, resurrection power, as we often say, that, you know, when he was raised with living in us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Does that make sense? That's why we have to start with justification, helping ourselves or um, helping other people. So, Last point there, new creation. This is actually a pretty good segue into the, the next one here is Ephesians 4, 22 to 24. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, a really helpful section dealing with progressive and positional sanctification. I think you guys see that as your next point, the relationship between those two. Paul's been talking about uh, to the church there, church in Ephesus, no longer living like the Gentiles do. And he says here, here's what you need to do. Put off your old self. All right, because we're a new creation. We no longer are the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What he's saying here, and he says this all throughout his letters, is this is who you are in Christ. New creation, temple of the Holy Spirit, a people of the new covenant. And that needs to take preeminence in your life. You could put it this way. You are a new creation, so start living like one. Okay? This is what's true of you positionally. This is who you need to be progressively. So that's kind of this next point here, the relationship between positional and progressive sanctification. Point one here, positional, we are sanctified. This is true of believers. Those who have been justified, they are sanctified. Just so you guys know, uh, in the New Testament, those words sanctify and, you know, holy, make holy, uh, holiness, they all have the same root word, okay? So, you know, there, there's, not a, there's not a difference between, you know, sanctification and holiness. That's what sanctification is, progressive growth in holiness. Progressive growth in uh, holiness as God is holy. So you got to start here. Christian, you are holy. Not in and of yourselves, but because Christ is holy and you're united to him, right? Remember united with Christ? That's how you're holy. It's because he is perfectly holy. It's not that you in and of yourself are now holy. You're holy because you are united to him. I love Hebrews 10.10. 10. makes this very, very clear. And by that will, the will of God, we have been sanctified. No, there's nothing progressive there. He's talking to believers and saying, past tense, you have been sanctified through, how are you made holy? Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, okay? So through the death of Christ, through the gospel, a once and for all event, believers are holy because they are in Christ, okay? Positional, we have to uh, talk about that. Typically, this is what we talk about, progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. This is what we have in mind when the word sanctification pops up. Positional, we are sanctified, yet progressive is also true. We ought to pursue sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 is very clear on this. For this is the will of God. You guys know what the next two words are? For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Your sanctification. Yes, thank you, David. <coughs> Interesting voice. Uh, yeah, your sanctification. Your growth in Christ-likeness, right? Yeah, this is what... God wants you to do. You know, as you're trying to discern the will of God for your life, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification, your growth in holiness. Yes, positionally, this is true. We are viewed as righteous and holy by faith because we are united to Christ. But in the day-to-day -day reality, our constitution, 
who we are, we're still affected by sin. The old man still clings so closely, as Romans 7 clearly talks about. Hence, the need to grow in holiness, the need to grow in Christ-like character. How does this shake out exactly in the Christian life? We'll get to that, the means of grace in a little bit. So kind of looking at that, the relationship between justification and sanctification. Moving through these points, what we're thinking through, the relationship between justification, that point one we talked about, and point two, sanctification, how do these relate? Um, One thing I would say, these are just some notes from a a class I took, which was really good, um, from one of my professors. He says, the gospel is about what God does for us. The gospel is about what God does for us and in us. Okay, Both are true. The gospel is about what, God, about what God does for us and in us by virtue of our union with Christ. We're united to, with him, and therefore you know, we can produce good fruit. We must not separate the two, what God does for us and what God does in us, in the Christian life. But we have to distinguish the two uh, to notice the difference the, of two dangerous heresies. We talk about what he does for us and in us to combat against legalism, and antinomianism, okay? Are you guys familiar with those terms? Legalism uh, is a system of theology where we seek to be justified by works, legal obedience to the law of God. On the contrary, antinomianism is that, well, because Christ fulfilled the law in our place, it doesn't matter how we live. We can just live, you know, lives filled of sin, and it doesn't matter, okay? Well, we have to talk about justification and sanctification Uh, Because we can mess these up. What God does for us, that combats against legalism. God has died in our place. We believe and are justified by faith because of what he has done for us. Okay, That's justification. What God does for us. And then against antinomianism, what God does in us. Well, because we're justified by faith, we have a new nature such that our hearts want to obey. Therefore, it does matter what we live like, right? If, if you say, I'm a believer, and, you know, you have no desire for obedience, you have no desire to walk in holiness, well, then that's cause for concern. It doesn't seem that Christ has changed the nature of that person. And so some of these points here, let me explain this one. Number one, obedience is necessary for salvation. Maybe some of you guys, you know, you're justification by faith alone. This is kind of like, ooh, I don't know about this statement, Right? Obedience is necessary for salvation. That's a good knee-jerk reaction to have, by the way. Anytime someone's like, you must obey to be saved. It's like, justification by faith alone. That sounds a little funny. Uh, That's a good reaction to have. Yet, Jesus says in passages, you guys remember this, Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? You guys remember that? Sermon on the Mount? That's what he's saying there. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Revelation 20 Uh, Verse 12 talks about how we will all be judged according to what we have done. So clearly, how we live, what we do, our obedience to the Lord, uh, says something about our eternal destiny. Okay, Just a couple of verses on that. So obedience to Christ is necessary for salvation, but, and this is a very important contrast here, obedience is necessary for salvation, but obedience isn't necessary as the meritorious cause obedience is not what merits God's grace. It's not that we obey and therefore we are saved. It's that we are saved, therefore we obey. Okay? There's a world of difference between those two. Right? 
We are saved and therefore we obey, but we are justified by faith alone. Romans 5.1 is so clear on this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that is how we are declared righteous. It is not that we are justified by our works. We're justified by faith, and that is why we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're united to him, Romans 8.1. That is why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Obedience is not the meritorious cause. It does not merit grace. It does not save us. So how then obedience, how is it necessary? Number three, obedience is necessary as the demonstrable evidence, okay? We are saved, therefore we obey. Obedience to Christ is rooted and based in saving faith that justifies, and it changes us such that we desire to obey and please the Lord and do what is right. So there's an inseparable link between justification and sanctification. Good works don't save, rather we are saved and therefore do good works. Yes? Uh-huh. The term for, I really get stuck on that because um, it just, I, I realize that premise two and premise three <coughs> work out the fact that you're not saying that mm-hmm. obedience is a fundamental factor for the occurrence of salvation. I mm-hmm. understand that. But that word for is a little bit misleading. Mm-hmm. Um, Right. So the word for just seems a little bit proactive on the human's mm-hmm. tendency. So I'm just super uncomfortable with it. Yeah. Well, if it's any consolation, I did not write these notes. And the guy who did is by no means an Arminian. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, if there's a better word there, I'm, I'm more than happy to do that. I think we do have to maintain the reality, and we do see this, this tension in the Christian life of there is, like, are we saved by faith alone? Yes, okay. And we're saved by sovereign grace alone. God is the one who works in us, and he changes us such that we obey, okay? Well, if he changes us such that we obey, those who obey are the ones who have been justified by that grace, and it changes us, right? Uh, I think really what we're trying to combat here is the idea, especially on the side of sanctification, that antinomianism, the carnal Christian, right? Well, because I've been justified freely by his grace, and he fulfilled the law of God in my place. Therefore, it doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter that I obey because Christ has done it all for me. And we respond and say, actually, no, that's not true, right? That's a false understanding of justification. We are saved. I mean, Ephesians 2, um, 10, I was going to get to this, right? Um, you know, we've been saved unto good works, which God has prepared beforehand. Like God, God destined from eternity past to save his people and that they would live out in good works. They would live lives of obedience, correct? Right? Right? So those who are, are not obeying, those who are living an antinomian lifestyle, we would say fundamentally don't understand justification. So I get your point. I, I don't know of a better word. I'd be happy if there's a, a better word. Um, but I don't know. I'm not an English. Yes? Mm-hmm. Some people start out in a little bit of but they don't really complete it. And they've got to set in a little bit of obedience. 
Right, yeah, I mean, there's a difference between um, quality, or no, I wouldn't say that, quantity of faith, right? You know, weak faith, strong faith, but the quality of that faith is what matters, right? So, I mean, I think Spurgeon said this, you know, a weak faith in Christ saves just as much as a strong faith in Christ. That's very comforting, right? Because there are a lot of us believers who, I mean, if we're just honest with our lives, there are times where you have very weak faith, right? Where you're just clinging to the cross, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that would be another helpful he distinction. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Another way you could put it, maybe another way to put it, I didn't want to get sucked down on all this because I didn't really want to, but that's okay. A better way to put it is maybe just say obedience is necessary antecedent for, un, to salvation, something like that. It's something that follows, right? Yeah. It's not that someone, he's not at all trying to say you must obey to be saved. Like, that's legalism, right? No. But those who are saved obey. Does that make sense? That, that's the crucial distinction there. But if someone is saying, I'm saved, and they don't obey, we would say, you have an issue with justification. You have an issue with understanding justification and sanctification. Um, and that's where this gets back to the gospel. Is not the, I mentioned this last week. The gospel is not a perfect balance between legalism and antinomianism. The gospel is actually something else. Okay? It is something entirely different. It's not that you know, I need to maintain a perfect balance of what I do, um, you know, legalism and antinomianism, but I also need to cling to free grace. It's like you need to cling to the gospel and what Christ has done for you and in you. What he's done for you declares you righteous. What he's doing in you helps you grow in Christ-likeness. Yeah? Um, <coughs> thinking of the verse for you to pray for good works in Christ Jesus, for he that works in you but for one to do according to his good pleasure. Right, Ephesians 2.10. And so what I'm thinking of is... I believe. So what I'm thinking of is sometimes we think of good works as a response to what Christ has done to us. And that we say that that's necessary because those good works are necessary because we, you know, we have to show our obedience to him. But I think that it's important to remember that those good works are not ours. They're his. So if you don't see good works right. in somebody, it's not a lack of their response to Christ. It's an evidence that he is not working in them. Right, yeah, and that's a good point. That's, uh, we, we have a tendency to look at it from our perspective, but it seems like the works issue is actually presented from God's perspective. Yeah. If there are works in a believer, they're not that believer's works. They're okay. Christ's works. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a good point. I, I think a helpful section on that, um, I don't know if I put the verse up here, I realize I went to the next slide ahead of time, that's eh, fine, is, um, I think it's Philippians 2, 12, eh, it's not up there, well, Titus 2, 11 is actually really good too, but Titus 2, not Titus 2, Philippians 2 talks about how, you know, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, right? Okay, so I need to work out, I need to live the Christian life for, what's the reason? It is God who works in you, right? Both to will and to work, Right? I, it's very helpful. So, you know, God is the one ultimately who works in the person such that they desire to work out obedience, okay? 
But you're still called to obey, right? And pray that the Lord would, would help you there more. Titus 2.11, I didn't write this down, but it's so helpful. He talks about, he says, Titus 2.11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Okay? Salvation has come in the gospel. Okay? I have it memorized, but I have to start from the beginning. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Okay? So the grace of God that saves is the grace of God that is training us. You see the like, understanding there, how the gospel is what justifies us and what sanctifies us? It's not a perfect balance of legalism and antinomianism. It's the gospel that saves and is also training us. We need to move on. Uh, Kevin DeYoung has a really helpful quote here, so I'll just quote him. He says it better, kind of summarizing this point. In effect, God says to you, because you believe in Christ, by the Holy Spirit, I've joined you to Christ. When he died, this is union with Christ. When he died, you died. When he rose, you rose. He's in heaven, so you're in heaven. He's holy, so you're holy. Your position right now, objectively and factually, is as a holy, beloved child of God, dead to sin, alive to righteousness, and seated in my holy heaven. Now live like it, okay? There, there's where you see justification and sanctification worked out. Because all this is true, the believer goes, yeah, I need to live like that, okay? That's where, if we understand the gospel, if we have a right understanding of the gospel, we're accepting it by faith, believing in it, trusting in it, we're going to desire to obey. I think to your point, no one is saying that we're going to perfectly obey, right? Of course not, okay? We're going to fall, but it goes back to this weak faith principle. Weak faith is what saves. Even a weak obedience, okay? If someone's been anchored to sin for 50 years, we shouldn't expect that the next day it's just gone. Praise the Lord, he could do that. But more than likely, that's not going to happen. Does that make sense? But that principle, that desire to obey the Lord is going to grow. It's going to increase. Okay, next section here. The causes of sanctification. I'm going to go through these really quick. <coughs> Actually, I mean, <clears throat> this continues on what, on what we've been talking about. Um, by the way, I'm glad to hear you guys talk. I'm glad you guys are thinking through these things uh, with me. I'm not just talking to a wall here. Uh, the causes of sanctification, this is important. This goes back to that obedience, right? Does it ultimately come from us? No, it's actually from, I'm just going to jump through, the triune God, right? I mean, there are so many passages that talk about the Father's role in our sanctification, the Son's role in His sanctification, is interceding and praying for us, the Father and sovereignly electing that they would, you know, live out these good works. That those whom he called, he justified. Those he justified, he sanctified. And they're going to be glorified. The Spirit, he's continually at work. But you also have very clear in Scripture that the individual is called to obey. Okay? So we have to maintain the Bible's teaching clearly that both are true. God works and therefore we work. I think you said that a bunch, Jacob, when you preached on Nehemiah a long time. You said, like, God works, therefore we work. It's a really helpful principle, okay? God is the one who works, therefore we work. And that's Philippians 2, uh, 12 to 13. God works, therefore we work. The means of sanctification. This is actually where I wanted to spend more time, 10 minutes. All right, we'll have five or 10 minutes here. I want to talk about the ordinary means of grace. This is on the back of your notes, I think. The ordinary means of grace. I really think a lot of the dissatisfaction that believers have in their pilgrimage, let's just say, to go back to Pilgrim's Progress, in their progress in Christ-likeness, that dissatisfaction comes from not being satisfied with the ordinary means of grace. Okay? A dissatisfaction with the ordinary means of grace, and that leads to 
mysticism. That leads to, I need something else. Like, I just wish God would just, like, I would do everything he told me to do. I would obey perfectly. Like, if, if he just, like, if he spoke to me, like, if he just spoke to me in a dream, if he spoke to me in the inner longings of my soul, okay, or something like that, in the inner chamber of my heart, okay? It's just a desire for that, okay? A dissatisfaction with the ordinary means of grace. Um, and, and this is not new. Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, there will always be this tension, this desire for we need something extra, okay? I mean, Christian runs into this in Pilgrim's Progress when he meets Mr. Worldly Wise Man. He runs into the village of morality, like, oh, you know, I'm on this path, I need to go this way. Well, Mr. Worldly Wise Man, which, by the way, it's a whole uh, legalism system, maybe this is the way I should go. Uh, you know, the ordinary means of grace in this gospel is not enough. Um, but we have to go back to essentials, this back... Um, and I think the desire is too, is because the ordinary pilgrim's progress is a difficult journey, right? It's a hard, plodding, difficult journey. And so anything to make it easier, uh, we go to. The ordinary means of grace, maybe if you guys have never heard of that, the typical ordinary means of grace, what we've defined that as historically throughout church history is the word, prayer, and then the church, mainly focusing on the ordinances, right, of the Lord's Supper and baptism. But those are the ordinary means of grace. And what we mean by means of grace is this is the ordinary way that God's word has said, this is how God works in his believers. This is how you grow in sanctification. You spend time in his word, you spend time in prayer, and you spend time at church. Okay? It's not rocket science. Uh, those are the ordinary means of grace. And so I wanted to, I'm actually just going to display all six points here and then focus in on, on some of the last three um, a consecrated life here. I'm really just drawing from Romans 12. All right, I have this here somewhere. Um, you know, be transformed, um, you know, by the renewal of your mind. Second point there. Uh, consecrated life, really dealing with fighting against sin, okay? Consecrated life, setting it aside for holiness, right? The means of sanctification. This is how you grow. Well, you need to focus your life, your will. What are you going to do? A renewed mind. How are you going to think? You need to think what's biblically true, Number three, a transformed heart. So it goes into all those faculties, right? Heart, soul, mind, strength, affections, will, desires, all those things. We need to focus all of them on what is Christ-like. And then these last three, I'm going to give you some quotes from Swinnick that are really good. Treasuring the Word, cherishing prayer, and then devoting oneself to the church. <coughs> Treasuring the Word cherishing prayer and devoting oneself to the church. I want to give you guys a quote from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. So this is kind of some more Puritan stuff here. Remember the Westminster Confession of Faith, right? So when that was drafted, well, they also drafted several other things. Shorter Catechism, they would use this in church. They would use this uh, in fa uh, you know, at family worship, stuff like that. I actually haven't spent much time reading through these. They're so good. I'm actually going to get, they have a little Westminster Shorter Catechism, you know. What, what it's supposed to be is you read the question to your family, right? What are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? And then actually, you know, who you're reading it to, they memorize the answer. Um, I, I'm not going that far, but like that, that'd be... <laughs> Ruth is not memorizing the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's just not happening, uh, no matter how hard I try. Um, but uh, really, really good. Uh, one of the good things about, I mentioned this, with statements of faith, confessions of faith, the catechisms, they talk about very essential 
doctrines of the faith in concise terms, okay? And uh, so this is Western Shorter Catechism. I think the only thing we're going to disagree with is anything they talk about on baptism, because they're paedo-baptist. Um, I didn't read through uh, to see if they, but I, I just know it's, it's paedo-baptist. So anyways, uh, talking about the ordinary means of grace, what are they? The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially, or what he's saying particularly, these are the ones I'm talking about. What are those ordinances? The word, the sacraments, he's talking about um, baptism in the Lord's table, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. These are the means of grace. This is what God uses uh, to um, communicate the benefits of redemption uh, to his people. Okay? Uh, a lot of good quotes here from George Swinnick. Um, we've only got four minutes, so I'm going to go through these really quick. Swinnick, we talked about him in the incomparableness of God. He talks about, I really like this, the picture he makes here. Ordinances are conduit pipes. Like, like think of pipes that carry the water, okay? What you need is the water, okay? That, that's what gives us life. If you don't have water, you're going to die, okay? But if you don't have a way to get the water, it's no good, Right? Well, he's talking about these ordinances, the word, prayer, you know, fellowshipping with the church and the ordinances. That's how the water is brought to us. Does that make sense? That's what he's saying in here. Ordinances are conduit pipes whereby the water of life is derived from Christ in the hearts of Christians. As the light and beams of the sun is the chariot. Chariot was more used back then because they didn't have cars. You know, like we'd say vehicle probably. So you notice there that's what's going on. Okay. As the light and beams of the sun is the chariot or the vehicle. To convey the heat and influence of the sun to the world, so the ordinances of God are the chariots, whereby God conveys the heat of his grace and the influences of his spirit to men and women. And so these ordinances are important because this is how God ordinarily works in the lives of his people. So just on that fourth point, treasuring the word. He has some really good quotes here I'm just going to read. Before you go to hear or read, right, the word labor, work hard to affect your heart with the necessity, excellency, and efficacy of the word. Urge your soul with this. The word which I am going to hear is absolutely necessary to my spiritual and eternal good. Think about that before we go, you know, in the worship service this morning. I need to hear what's going to be said. Sometimes, you know, worship service is lifeless to us because we haven't done this preparatory heart work. We haven't cultivated our hearts such that we need to hear this. I am dead. And it is the word which must enliven me. I am blind, and it is the word that must enlighten me. He goes on, my soul is sinful, and it is the word that must sanctify it. My soul is sick, it is the word that must heal it. My soul is hungry, and it is the word that must feed it, or I shall starve. My soul is thirsty, and it is the word that must satisfy it, or I shall die for thirst. Notice how he's just saying, in your spiritual condition, if you're a believer, what do you need? The word. That's what you need. You don't need ecstatic, emotional, spiritual experiences. You'll have those experiences of the Holy Spirit as he works through the word. What you need is the word. He moves on talking about prayer. This is convicting, but really good. It is a, is a contempt, sorry, both of God's majesty and mercy for you to throw down your prayers before him and then to run away not caring what becomes of it. We do that a lot. I don't know, maybe that's just me, right? We just throw down our prayer, quick prayer real quick. He, he talks about later on there, I'm not saying we shouldn't have quick prayer, you know, a word of prayer, uh, but pursue your prayers. Like if you pray for this thing, 
Well, then pursue it. I prayed for the salvation of my neighbor, Joe. Well, then go talk to Joe, okay? It's just common sense. That's how the Lord works. If you pray for your daily bread, he goes on, be diligent in your calling or else expect a crop out of the ocean. He's saying, look, if you want to be fed, then work hard, right? If you're a farmer, be a good farmer, work hard or whatever it is, earn money or else expect a crop out of the ocean. It's not going to happen, right? You're not going to get cropped out of the ocean. If you pray against some particular sin, avoid the occasion of those sins, right? I don't want to sin in this way. Well, then don't go that way. If it be against uh, drunkenness, avoid evil company. If it be against pride, avoid and discourage such as will flatter you. For otherwise, you do as he that runs into the fire and prays to God that it may not burn him. That's dumb. Don't do that. Right? Pursue your prayers. Such a man mocks God, but himself most. If you pray for holiness and grace, hear, read, meditate, watch, use the means, and expect a good issue from God. Expect God to answer your prayers. Last one here, devoting yourself to the church. Remember, they would call the Sabbath day, you know, their Sunday, the market day of the soul. It's not that their Sunday, their Sabbaths were boring. It was the market day of the soul where you're going, you know, it's like you're going to Walmart or wherever you go shopping. You're just getting all the good stuff. Oh, yeah, the chicken, man. I'm going to get this rice. I'm going to, oh, it's a great day when you get all your groceries and all that stuff. I mean, I hope so. I don't know. It's good to get all your food, to feed yourself, okay? That's what church should be like, where you're just filling up on what you need for life and godliness. Make preparation for the day. Truly, friend, it is so with us in matters of higher moments. Hearts like soil must be prepared for the seed of the word. How many a sermon has been lost because this was wanting, this was lacking. I like this. You know, if anyone plays an instrument, you'll like this. And the violins of our souls must be tuned to praise God, or otherwise they will sound but harshly in his ears. That's so true. If you don't know how to play violin, it is not going to sound good, okay? So tune the violin of your soul before you uh, join the Lord's, Lord's people on the Lord's day. Last two here. Actually, this is just one. They that come to duty merely for duty... Know not what it means to meet with God. Reader, when you go to the ordinances of God, when you go to those conduit pipes, go to meet God in the ordinances. You don't just read the word for the sake of reading the word. You read the word to meet with God as he speaks in his word, right? You pray, not just to pray, but to talk to God. You go to church to have fellowship with God and his people. Go to view the beauty of his face when you inquire into his holy temple. When you go to prayer, let it be in hope to get your heart nearer to heaven. Last one here. True believers. Oh, actually, this is is on assurance. Um, I'll probably skip this because we'll have to come back to it. But actually, I'll read it. We're almost done. One of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this is we're talking about justification, sanctification. It's very common that people struggle with assurance. Okay, It's very common in normal, ordinary Christian life that a true believer, someone who has been justified, is going to struggle with the fact that they are or not, okay? And so how do you help them? This is from the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, which we've read before on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights. It's basically, it's copy and paste, the Westminster Confession of Faith, except on the area of baptism. I really like their last article here. True believers may in various ways have the assurance of their salvation shaken, decreased, or temporarily lost, This may happen because they neglect to persevere in it uh, or fall into some specific sin uh, that wounds their conscience and grieves the spirit. It may happen through some unexpected or forceful temptation or when God withdraws the light of his face and allows even those 
who fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. Yet, this is very important, yet they are never completely lacking the seed of God, the life of faith, love of Christ, and the brethren, sincerity of heart or conscience concerning their duty. Out of these graces, through the work of the Spirit, this assurance may at the proper time be revived. In the meantime, they are kept from utter despair through them. He's saying believers might lose that assurance, but they, God has never left them. They never completely, utterly despair. So, sorry about that. We got bogged down a little bit on justification and sanctification, which is good. That's fine. Those are important things to think through. Um, I was going to leave some time for some questions, but that's okay. Uh, next two weeks, we're moving to practical matters, okay? Uh, I wanted to spend some time, theological Q&A. We don't have time. It's okay. Maybe we can talk about it later. Um, but uh, practical matters, okay? So, like, what did the Puritans think about, like, marriage and family, Okay. Um, that should be good. What did they think about, you know, how we practically meditate and pray, um, you know, church and worship? How did they do that? And then finally, the last week, I want to look at some Puritan faults, what they did wrong. Uh, they wrote too long of sentences. That's for one. Um, but some other things, like what, what else did they do wrong? What did they do particularly well? Um, what did they do really well and what can we learn from? So that's that. Two more weeks and we'll be done. Book giveaway. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, the book giveaway. Sorry. That's why you're all here. Um, the book giveaway this week is um, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by, uh, oh, Lori wants it, uh, by uh, Jeremiah Burroughs. And so, what's that? Yes, Lori already got it. Lori got it. Uh, that's a Puritan classic. Um, we still have two more after that that are really good. So, Lori, you got it. You are dismissed. Thank you.